This is Under the Cortex, supported by Macmillan Learning Psychology. Well, here we are, Ludmilla, back again. After 12 months, we finally reached the end of 2021. Hi, Charles. That's true. It's quite unbelievable, but here we are again. Well, as suggested, it was a year ago you and I sat down to look back over the past year's really interesting news, and uh, we kind of take a different approach to it. I look at how well our news releases did and how interested people in the media were about them, and you look at something else. What is that? Uh, Yes, I looked at Altmetric scores again which are basically aggregate measures of the attention an article gets. So those measures consider uh, social media, online news, how many times an article is bookmarked, viewed, if it's mentioned in Wikipedia. So it's a general online attention across the globe about an article. There's been quite a bit of news actually on topics that really have a lot to do with psychological science, particularly with the fatigue we now feel with the pandemic. I take it there's probably some overlap in your research and mine on that topic. Yes, if I recall correctly, I got at least in my top 10, there were at least three articles that are about COVID and with data already collected during COVID. Well, to make things easy and not to drag this into an hour-long podcast, what I'm suggesting is we pick the top five out of our top 10, go back and forth, Tell our audience what looks like to have been the most interesting news and see where we go from there. Again, let me say I am Charles Blue with the Association for Psychological Science, and I am speaking with... I'm Ludmila Nunch, uh, the Senior Science Writer with the Association for Psychological Science. Well, I will go ahead and jump right in on exactly that topic of COVID-19. And to help us with our countdown, I'm pleased to introduce APS's new virtual announcer. Coming in at number 10 from January 2021, depression and stress could dampen efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines. And this is Janice Kilcott-Glazer, and she's with The Ohio State University. It started with decades of research, and it showed that depression, stress, loneliness can weaken the body's immune system. So this is something we've known, but it could also lower the effectiveness of certain vaccines. So... What the research basically said is that if you were dealing with issues of stress, issues of poor health, including genetics, physical, mental health, this could weaken the body's immune system and it would slow the response to a vaccine. Now, that is particularly troubling with the novel coronavirus that continues to ravage across the world, and it could be connected to this concurrent mental health crisis that people are dealing with, with isolation, economic stressors, uncertainty about the future. So these challenges kind of overlap, and they show that it's possible to have weakened vaccine efficacy, particularly among the elderly. So what this researcher did, took a look at really how all these vaccines, which are about, at the time, 95% effective, they were judged, and showed that If you did things in advance, one strategy that they recommended is engaging in, say, vigorous exercise or getting a good night's sleep in the 24 hours before vaccination, your immune system may be operating at better performance. And even things like reaching out to people, making sure that they're 
feeling well and that they've got good health, good mental health, that they're not feeling isolated. This could actually help improve the efficacy of the vaccine and hopefully uh, bring us closer to an end of the pandemic. That was certainly good news 12 months ago or so when this research came out, but I think the idea is still the same. And every time I go out and get my vaccines, I always made sure that it was on the day after I had a good workout. So that was one that really struck my attention. It's good news, like you just said. Um, so I actually s tried to select not the ones so related to COVID because we've been talking a lot about it already. And an interesting pattern that I found on my top articles was that articles about education seem to be gathering a lot of attention. And of course, we can speculate that these might also be related to COVID because parents are homeschooling, instructors needed to move classes to online environments, they were not used to, to do so. So they might be trying to search for the most effective ways of teaching. So a really interesting one uh, that I found was these meta-analysis about the effects of studying and taking notes during class just using a laptop. It's number nine from April 2021. Don't ditch the laptop just yet. Replication finds no immediate advantage to writing notes by hand. I, I thought this one was really interesting because it's a replication of a 2014 study and then a mini meta-analysis across similar studies to this. So in the 2014 study, participants watched the lecture and took notes by hand or using a laptop and then responded to a quiz. So in both the original study and in this replication, participants who used the laptop typed more words and more verbatim words, so they were more likely to reproduce uh, exactly what had been said in the lecture. But in the original 2014 study, participants who took notes using the laptop performed worse in the quiz than participants who had taken notes by hand. Now, in this replication, this did not happen. So performance in the quiz was exactly the same, which is interesting as people are using laptops more and more maybe they don't have the nefarious effects that previous studies had suggested. Um, so in my main area of research has been education. So I always wonder about generation effects in this type of research, how different it is a study conducted in 2014, their sample from a study conducted in 2020, 2021, because uh, students now are way more used to laptops than previous generations were. So I wonder how those affect the effects now. That's interesting. Yeah, the younger generation may have adopted taking notes by laptop much earlier in their educational career, say even in, in first or second grade, compared to those of us of older generations who uh, kind of had to relearn how to take notes. Exactly. Interesting. Well, I'm going to take a bit of a hard turn to the left here and talk about something completely unrelated to COVID as well. And this is sort of an ongoing issue of stereotypes and the sex lives of women and self-esteem. Number eight from June 2021, persistent stereotypes falsely link women's self-esteem to their sex lives. So 
there's research that was published in Psychological Science that showed that there's a pervasive but unfounded stereotype, and that is women, but not men, who engage in casual sex have low self-esteem. The researcher in this, Jamie Arona Krems, who is with Oklahoma State University, was really surprised that this stereotype was so widely held. The stereotype was held by both men and women, liberals, conservatives, across the spectrum of people's religiosity. So it really was amazing that she found out that it was so widely held and so unfounded. And the fact is, there's virtually no relationship between a person's own self-esteem and their sexual behavior. So in one study, Krems and her colleagues had participants read about a hypothetical man, woman, or unspecified person who had casual sex, monogamous sex, or no reported sex behavior. And they were asked to make some snap judgments about that person's personality based solely on this information. What they found is that women who had casual sex were judged as having lower self-esteem, but they didn't make this connection to men's sexual behavior. What even made this a stronger study is they found that this same stereotype persisted, even when the participants were confronted with contrary information. They explicitly told participants that the women who had casual sex were enjoying it, satisfied with their behavior, and there was no impact on their self-esteem. Participants still stereotype them as having lower self-esteem than women in monogamous relationships who are actually unsatisfied with their sexual behavior. And the reason this is important is previous research has suggested that people perceived, just perceived to have low self-esteem, are less likely to be hired for jobs, voted into political office, or sought out as friends or romantic partners. So even though it's not grounded in reality, this stereotype has been documented in many ways to have harmful effects, and they can have serious consequences in the real world. Yeah, that's a really interesting one, how those double standards for men and women end up affecting women in such many levels. So a little bit related to this one, I found this study really interesting. It comes from the University of Melbourne and the University of New South Wales. And what the researchers did was tracking misogynistic tweets in different areas across the United States and then see how those were correlated with incidents of domestic and family violence reported to the FBI in those same areas. It's number seven from February 2021. Misogynistic tweets correlate with violence against women. And what they found was that these tweets were actually a significant predictor of future domestic and family violence, which is usually, in 70% of the cases, perpetrated against women. Uh, so although these findings do not suggest that misogyny on social media causes violence against women, they suggest that expressing prejudice overtly against women tends to co-occur with domestic violence. Of course, more research is needed to understand the direction of the relationship, but showing that the two things are related can be very important for future research and possibly uh, interventions to reduce violence against women. The suggestion then is perhaps if patterns of threatening language or abusive commentary were detected as as 
really a pattern among some people that might be a cause to at least investigate the potential for domestic violence in that situation? Uh, yes, I would say so. At least some preventive measures can be taken if you can identify those areas where misogynistic expressions in social media are more frequent. Well, let's take a, a deeper look at this whole thing about science. I'm, I'm really big in communicating science. It's what I do. And we have been dealing with quite a bit of misperceptions about science, miscommunications. And it's a big topic because one misconception about one area of science may not relate to another. So there was a study also this year about understanding scientific consensus, understanding the concept of scientific consensus, may correct misperceptions about GMOs, genetically modified organisms, but not climate change. That's number six from September 2021. Understanding scientific consensus may correct misperceptions about GMOs, but not climate change. So people naturally assume that scientific consensus means that there is no disagreement. That's not necessarily the case. Scientific consensus is a strong, well-documented, well-formulated theory observation that is very broadly accepted among multiple scientific fields, but that doesn't mean that you can't find one or two people who won't say the opposite. But what they discovered was that uh, when they explained this and how strong it was and what it meant that there really was just convincing and almost overwhelming evidence of a particular field, people responded to that information differently depending on the topics. One was the safety of genetically modified foods. GMOs have certainly gotten a bad rep over the years. There have been a great deal of misconceptions about them, particularly that they could be unsafe. So the researchers found that after they gave this first infographic about the value of scientific consensus and how to identify it, that when it came to genetically engineered food, they were able to correct for this misinformation. And it seemed to work more effectively when the people were simultaneously informed of the facts and given an explanation about how scientific consensus works. But when it came to reports about climate change, the results were less clear, which is why they're not so sure whether the strategy will be helpful in informing people about this or other topics. The researchers believe that this may be because people in the United States have less trust in climate scientists than they do in biomedical scientists. Yeah, so that study is very interesting. Uh, I remember reading it and wondering why there is this difference between areas where there is scientific distrust and how why it's easier to build that trust in one areas and not in others. Uh, one of the things that occurred to me could be actually if you're a consumer, you have all the interest in trusting GMOs because that makes your life, for example, going to the grocery store way easier. But believing in climate change can actually have you to take steps uh, that are harder to implement, thinking of people as decision makers and which decisions are easier to implement versus others. Yeah, I'm thinking there, there also could be the situation where climate science has become much more politically polarized. And since people generally accept the beliefs of their peers and the people in their social groups, it's probably harder because you're not only fighting just scientific information, you're fighting this momentum of group dynamic, which really has gotten wrapped up with climate change. So it's curious how that may also play over with 
things like vaccine hesitancy, which also has become very politicized and polarized and has become an identifying principle of one's political and social beliefs. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that you mentioned that because there is one article that I think appeared in both of our uh, tops uh, that has to do with the climate, um, with COVID-19, with the pandemic and all the measures and how that climate could foster political divide and even violence. Yeah, let's actually talk about that because it was one I wanted to mention. And since you've looked at it as well, uh, let, let's consider that a, a collective Top five out of our top tens. Number four and number five from October 2021. The burden of the COVID-19 pandemic may motivate outbreaks of violent protest and anti-government sentiment. What it basically is showing is that this burden of the pandemic, the psychological, the economic, the situation, it actually could be contributing to the outbreaks of violent protest and anti-government sentiment. So the investigation showed that the psychological toll of living through a pandemic has stoked anti-government, anti-systemic attitudes. So they asked 6,000 adults in the United States, Denmark, Italy, and Hungary, if and how the COVID pandemic had negatively affected their health, relationships, and rights. And they were asked to report if they felt dissatisfaction with their societies and governments and whether they were motivated to engage in or had already engaged in protests or political violence. The results uncovered a striking association between the psychological burden of COVID-19 and sentiments and behaviors, including the use of violence for a political cause. In contrast, the research revealed no consistent correlation between the COVID-19 burden and the motivations to engage in peaceful forms of activism. And what's Startling for me is that the researchers found that in the United States specifically, those experienced high COVID-19 burden were also more likely to report engagement in violence during Black Lives Matter protests and counter-protests. So the pandemic and associated lockdown may have contributed to the frustrations that were unleashed in these events. Yeah, that's true, Charles. And let's see how things evolve as the pandemic evolves, as we seem to find some things that work in fighting the pandemic, how these social consequences might change. Let's hope they do. Um, Okay, I'm going to switch gears here and talk about something, a very funny article that I I believe you also covered this one. And it received, I remember it receiving a lot of attention in social media. And of course, it has a very high altmetric score. This was the number two article of the year, and it's about dogs. Oh, dogs are great topics. (laughs) Yeah, we all love dogs. Number three from April 2021, dogs act jealously even when they don't see their rival. Uh, This article comes out of the University of Auckland. Amalia P.M. Bastos was the first author. And what the researchers did here was having dogs observe a realistic-looking but fake dog positioned next to their owner. And then they put a barrier between the dog and the owner and the fake dog. So the dog can no longer see the interaction or supposed interaction of the owner with the fake dog. And the dogs forcefully attempt to reach their owners 
behind the barrier. So they display all the signs of jealousy. They bark, they try to get to their owner. Now, what's interesting is that when instead of a fake dog, so something that looks like a dog, the the owners seem to be playing with a fleece cylinder. So visually the same aspect, but does not look like another dog. The dogs do not show jealousy. So only when it looks like a dog, the dogs show jealousy. So this shows that dogs are able to show some human-like signatures of jealous behavior. So this research supports that, that idea that, that dogs can be jealous like humans can. I have no doubt about that, considering the way my dog behaves when I interact with anything other than him. What I think is also interesting about this is that it was happening out of the sight of the dog. The dog actually had to imagine in its mind that somewhere behind this screen, my human partner is showing affection to something other than me, to a dog other than me, even when I, though I don't see it. So they actually had to create this visual representation of what may be happening out of their vision. Exactly. It's like the dogs have the ability to represent this interaction and then be jealous about it, not just something that they see. I think my dog would show this behavior exactly. Uh, he's known for barking whenever a meeting starts and I say hello to people. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to be careful not to say the word walk when I'm in the house. <laughs> well, I'm going to wrap things up with at least my part of it in a kind of a curious and fun little topic about optical illusions. I've always been fascinated by them. I think they're they're amazing how our eyes can deceive us. And there was some research done at the University of Chicago about a very famous illusion. I can explain it. Obviously, I can't show it because we're just talking, but it's called the Mueller-Lyer illusion. It's the runner-up from August 2021. Gesturing produces effect of a classic optical illusion. And this is when there's two sticks or two lines. They're exactly the same length. But at the end of one, there are these rays heading off, making it appear wider. And there's other ones where there's like the points of arrows pointing outward. So they're either the fins are pointing out or they're pointing in. And that changes the way we see it. We, our brain sees that and it creates the illusion that one is significantly longer than the other. Now, what the researchers did was they wanted to take that out of just, here's a picture. We're going to make it real life. So they actually had sticks that were inside these holders that had these fins on the side, and they had to estimate the size of them. And by looking at them, not much changed. They, they basically looked like they were two different lengths. But when they started to bring their hand into it, when they made a gesture to pick up one, their mind sort of broke that illusion. They weren't as susceptible to it. So when you look at the illusion, you're captured by it. But if you begin to move as if you're going to grab one of the objects, something different seems to happen between your hand and your mind. You're no longer quite as susceptible to the illusion as you were. And the discovery is that accuracy improves when you gesture about an object and not just when you talk about it. So the reason that the researchers went ahead and did this is they wanted to shed light on the origin of gesturing which is related to both action and speech. So by evaluating the way people gauge the illusion in three contexts, using sight alone, um, preparing to act, and describing the action in gesture with speech, they could actually get a better handle on kind of the basis of this 
using of gestures and communications. And it's not always just to augment what we're saying, but it helps us to present sort of a more realistic representation of the world. And I just thought that was a fascinating one. And uh, go online, look up The Illusion, and uh, see for yourself if those two lines look exactly the same or not. Visual illusions are so fascinating. We actually, believe, have an entire research topic on illusions on our website. So if you want to dive in, go ahead and, and take a deeper look. Yeah, we do. We do. And it's, it's so cool how there are visual illusions, memory illusions. Uh, it's a fascinating topic. Okay, and I'm going to talk about the number one article according to Altmetric scores. And lastly, from July 2021, the number one APS article was The Bilingual Advantage in Children's Executive Functioning is Not Related to Language Status. So this one is about bilinguals. And it's uh, research coming out of the University of Western Ontario and Brandeis University. And again, it's a meta-analytic review. So there is this common idea that bilingual children, so children who grow up speaking two languages fluently, tend to perform better than children who grow up speaking just one language in many executive functioning tasks. So tasks that involve attention, working memory, decision-making. And according to these meta-analyses that looked into more than 1,000 effect sizes, so more than 1,000 comparisons, this does not seem to be true. So what the researchers did was synthesizing data from studies that compared the performance of monolingual and bilingual participants between the ages of 3 and 17 years in various executive functioning domains. And they found that there were basically no differences between the performance of monolingual and bilingual children in various tasks that involved attention, working memory. So bilingualism, according to these meta-analyses, does not appear to boost performance in various tasks, uh, in various functions that serve learning, thinking, reasoning, or problem solving. So I believe it's a myth now. A lot of people think that bilingual children are going to learn better, perform better, be smarter almost than monolingual children. This does not seem to be true. These children might have an advantage in tasks that are exclusively related to language, but not in other tasks that need other processes more related to general learning and memory and attention. Okay, personal question then. You speak Portuguese, Portuguese? Would be yes, proper Portuguese. I believe Portuguese. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and English. Was this something you picked up when you were very young or did you have to learn English later in life? No, I didn't grow up bilingual at all. And that's probably the reason why I have this accent. <laughs> I picked up English way later in life. Uh, I had... English classes at school uh, growing up, but I was never bilingual. Probably around 21, 22 is when I started to have to function in English. So no, I'm not smarter than everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) And this this research would show that no, I, I would not have more facility in learning or anything else because I speak two languages rather than one. 
but still I am not bilingual by definition since I didn't grow up speaking both languages. You and I had a very similar trajectory in that. I picked up Spanish later in life. I had to live in Spain a few times and it was interesting. My accent actually got very good toward the end, I understand, but it it took a great deal of effort. And when I just see people who kind of grew up around it and it was part of their childhood and they speak so easily, I just feel so jealous about that, but uh, delighted that I can at least still use it from time to time. Mm -hmm. No, and I believe there's research showing that when you start learning other languages, doesn't matter how how old you are, you actually experience boosts in certain tasks, uh, just not on these general functioning tasks. But it's certainly a rewarding effort. Makes it a lot easier when I go on vacation, yes. Yes. (laughs) Well, I would like to thank you. This is kind of wrapping up the science that we saw in 2021. And hopefully it will point the way to exciting research in 2022 and hopefully a better year in 2022. Thanks for having me again, Charles. Again, this was fun to do, and it's always nice to look at the research that came out of in our journals. And yes, I hope this paves the, the path forward in 2022. Absolutely. Thanks again, Ludmilla, and hopefully we'll be talking about some interesting things 12 months from today. I Have hope a good so. Day. You too. <laughs> Introducing Macmillan Learning's Achieve for Psychology, setting a whole new standard for integrating assessments, activities, and analytics into your teaching. Coming in 2022, Achieve brings together everything instructors and students love about our digital course content, including interactive ebooks, learning curve adaptive quizzing, additional assessments, immersive learning activities, extensive instructor resources, and more, all in a powerful yet easy to use new platform. And we'd like you to have an exclusive first look and tell us what you think. Go to macmillanlearning.com slash under the cortex to sign up for a preview activity today. Macmillan's Achieve for Psychology, engaging every student, supporting every instructor, setting the new standard for teaching and learning.